Today, we're in Ephesians chapter 6, and we are looking at the subject of spiritual warfare. So turn with me to chapter 6, and let's start with verse 10. Finally, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Clothe yourself with the full armor that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand your ground on the evil day. And having done everything, to stand. Stand firm, therefore, by fastening the belt of truth around your waist, by putting on the breastplate of righteousness, by fitting your feet with the preparation that comes from the good news of peace, and, and in all of this, by taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With every prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And to this end, be alert. And with all perseverance and petitions for all the saints, pray for me that I also that I may be given the right words when I begin to speak, that I may, may confidently make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may be able to speak boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Hmm? Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, uh, we, we just pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding. We pray that, Lord, that you would help us to see here what you want us to see. And, and we, we pray that, Lord, that we might grow in such a way that we might glorify your holy name as a result of, uh, of studying your word. Lord, guide us. These things, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, um, one of the things about you know preaching on spiritual warfare, you know, you listen to a lot of these guys, and you kind of get the feeling like, you know, preaching on spiritual warfare is like passing in the NFL. You know, three things can happen, and two of them are bad. <laughs> you know, on the one hand, you get some of these guys who they they. They, they give you this, this idea that, you know, like you're some sort of wizard and, you know, you, you've got these spells or incantations and the, these demons and are, are everywhere and they kind of really overplay it. On the other hand, you also have these other guys who so downplay the significance of what's here that it's not of any real value to anybody. And so, you know, what I'm hoping is I strike the right tone here. What I'm hoping is that I, I communicate to you what Paul is trying to communicate to his readers, okay? And there's a lot that his readers understand that we don't in our contemporary setting. So we're going to be looking at some of these things. Now, when you look at this section of Scripture, verses 10 through 20, there's essentially three parts, okay? So in verses 10 through 13 you see the necessity of putting on God's armor. 
And in verses 14 through 17, what you see is an explanation of these different pieces of armor and how, they, how they're supposed to be used. In the last part, verses 18 through 20, what we find is the constant need for prayer. That this is an essential part of our being effective in this kind of warfare. Now, you know, um, I'm, I'm not going to cover all of this today. Uh, I, today I want to focus on um, verses 10 through 12 because this gives us a lot of the background that um, we, we really need to understand in order to, to get what's really in the rest of the scripture. So one of the things that we see when we take a look at, at Ephesians as a whole, okay, in chapters 1 through 3, what Paul does is he tells us how great a salvation it is that we have. And he gives all the dimensions to the salvation and talks about how it was at one time just for the Jews and God has opened it up for us Gentiles. And now we are, we are one nation, one Israel together. And this salvation is for all of us. And how at one time we were apart from God's people, now we're part of them. So, the second part of this book, starting with chapter 4, verse 1, it's interesting because you see this focus on how we should live. And he says in chapter 4, verse 1, he says this, I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthily of the calling with which you have been called. He tells us to walk worthily. Jesus Christ bought us at a great price. And as a result, we should be living differently. We should be living differently from all those around us who do not have Christ. We should be loving what he loves. We should be hating what he hates. We should be doing what he tells us to do in his word. He then goes on in chapter 4, verse 17, and he says this, So I say this and insist in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So he doesn't want us to, he, he wants us to walk worthily. And what part of that, what that means partially, is that we think rightly. That we walk not as the Gentiles do. That we don't think like the Gentiles do. Like those without Christ. We don't think. And we don't walk like those who don't have Christ. We are called, folks, to be different. He then goes on in chapter 5, in verse 2, he says this, starting with verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as dearly beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved us, and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. 
We need to walk in love. Not in pride, not in self-assurance. No, we need to walk in love. In chapter 5, verse 15, he goes on to say this. Therefore, walk carefully how how you live. Not as unwise but as wise. So we are to walk wisely. And one of the things that he does is he, he fleshes this out. And, and he goes on and he talks about how we need to consider that the days are evil. And so part of this, um, he talks about worship, he talks about the household. He talks about the workplace. He talks about the family. And so now we are towards the very end. We are at the epilogue. And so he's trying to finish up and really encourage us to live, to walk in this different manner, in this way that will glorify God And he begins by saying, finally, or some translations will have from now on, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his power. You know, at the beginning of Joshua, one of the things that that God says to Joshua is he says, be strong and courageous. You're going into this promised land, And there's going to be a lot of good stuff there. But there's also going to be some difficulty. And so he encourages Joshua to be strong and to be courageous. And in much the same way, Paul is, is, he's told us about how great the salvation is. And he's told us about how we should live. But you know what? It's not going to be easy. Why is it not going to be easy? Well, because one of the things that's going to happen is that you're going to find yourself in a fight. He says, finally be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his power. And here's the important thing, folks. Yeah. It's going to be difficult, but you are not going into this by yourself. He is living in you. He is walking with you. He is strengthening you. He is empowering you to live the way that he wants you to live. And we need to strengthen ourselves We need to step into that, knowing that he's going to be with us. He says, clothe yourselves in the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, who's the devil? 
Well, in the New Testament, it's pretty apparent. Let's take a look at just a few verses with relation to this. Let's go to the book of the Revelation. Let's go to chapter 20. And let's go to verse 1. Then I saw an angel descending from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the abyss and a huge chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and tied him up for a thousand years. Now, he's removing every bit of doubt who this is. He says, he's the dragon, he's the ancient serpent. What serpent is he talking about? He's talking about the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He calls him the devil, and he calls him Satan, the accuser. He's not leaving any room for doubt as to who we are talking about here. Let's go to John. Let's go to chapter 12. And let's go to verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. He says he's the ruler of this world. Satan is the ruler of the world. The devil is the ruler of of this world. This is one of the reasons why John, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he says, love not the world or the things in the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is from the world. And the world is passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Folks, you and I, as, as, as Paul said earlier, we should not be thinking like the rest of the world. We should be operating with a different standard. We should be living by a different standard, speaking with a different standard, thinking by a different standard. Because all of this world right now belongs to the devil. 
Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now let's start with verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, just as God has shown us mercy, we do not become discouraged because we have rejected shameful hidden deeds, not behaving with deceptiveness or distorting the word of God, but by open proclamation of the truth. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience before God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing, among whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe so that they would not see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. He says that Satan, the devil, is the God of this age. And what does he do? Here's what he does. He blinds the minds of those who do not believe. We're going to get into the real nature of this warfare. See, here's the thing. We look at the Garden of Eden where the serpent appears, and that's, that's the initial part of the fall of man. But the way that the Jews thought about it, there was a little bit more to it than that. The next part came in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, when it says the sons of God, these angelic beings, they cohabitated with, with, with human women, and what happened was they produced these, these half-breed offspring. These giants, these men of renown. And the last part happened at the Tower of Babel. Of Babel. And one of the things that happened there was God scattered men to all these different nations. And one of the things that he did was he put these angelic powers over these nations to govern them. Let's take a look at, Genesis, at Deuteronomy. Let's take a look at chapter 32. And let's take a look at verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he divided up mankind, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. For the Lord's allotment is his people, Jacob is his special possession. Now verse 8 is of particular interest here because it said that when he divided up mankind into all these different nations that he did so according to the number of the sons of God. Now, some of your translations 
will say sons of Israel. And the reason for that is because for some reason in the Masoretic text, they translated it sons of Israel. But when you look at the oldest manuscripts, when you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, when you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of this, one of the things that you see is the sons of God. Okay? And what we know from the Hebrew understandings of this, from, from Hebrew literature, one of the things that we know is that he appointed these angelic beings over these different nations. And it, what was supposed to happen is that these angelic beings were supposed to rule in justice and righteousness, to guide these nations to do the right thing. Unfortunately, these angelic powers went their own way. Let's take a look at Psalm chapter, Psalm chapter 82. Start with verse 1. God stands in the assembly of El, in the midst of the gods. He renders judgment. He says, how long will you make unjust legal decisions and show favoritism to the wicked? Defend the cause of the poor and the fatherless. Vindicate the oppressed and suffering. Rescue the poor and needy. Deliver them from the power of the wicked. They neither know nor understand. They stumble around in the dark while all the foundations of the earth crumble. You thought that you were gods. All of you are sons of the Most High, yet you will die like men. You will fall like human rulers. Rise up, O God. Execute judgment on the earth. For you own all the nations. And the idea is this. The day is coming when all of these angelic powers are going to have to give an account. The day is coming when he is going to judge them. The day is coming when they will no longer get to rule over men unrighteously. That day is coming. And here's one of the, the things that happened, okay? So after the Tower of Babel, one of the things that the Lord does is he goes to Abraham. He chooses Abraham. And let's take a look at Genesis chapter 12. Starting with verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go out from your country, your relatives, your father's household, to a land that I will show you. And then I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will exemplify divine blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but the one who curses you I will curse, so that all the families of the earth may receive blessing through you. 
So God begins to redeem men after the Tower of Babel, starting first with Abraham. Then roughly a thousand years later, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 15, we read this. I'm still in 1 Samuel. In chapter 7, verse 15, verse, verse 8, I'm sorry, he says this, so, save, so now say this to my servant David. This is what the Lord of hosts has said. I took you from the pasture and from your work as a shepherd to make you a leader of my people Israel. I was with you wherever you went, and I defeated all your enemies before you. Now I'll make you as famous as the great men of the earth. I will establish a place for my people Israel and settle them there, and they will live there and not be disturbed anymore. Violent men will not oppress them again as they did in the beginning, and during the time when I appointed judges to lead my people Israel. Instead, I will give you relief from all your enemies, the Lord declares to you, that he himself will build a dynastic house for you. When the time comes for you to die, I will raise up your descendant, one of your own sons to succeed you, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will build up a house for my name, and I will make his dynasty per- permanent, and I will become his father, and he will become my son, and when he sins, I will correct him with the rod of men and with wounds inflicted by human beings, but my loyal love will not be removed from him as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will stand before me permanently. Your dynasty will be permanent. Nathan told David all these words that were revealed to him. So one of the things that the Lord does to rectify the situation is, first, he chooses Abram, and he makes a great nation of him, and he blesses him. And the next thing he does is he chooses from Abraham, from Israel, He chooses David, and he promises that he is going to have a descendant who's going to take over that kingdom, and he's going to do great things with it. Now let's turn to Matthew. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28. Let's take a look at verse 18. Then Jesus came up and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And remember... I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is this promised descendant of David. And before he left, he promised that he was going to come back. But in the meantime, he established the church as his kingdom. And we, as citizens of that kingdom, well, we 
have an enemy. An enemy who's blinded people to the truth about that kingdom. Because this enemy, Satan, the devil, the accuser, has people in his power. And he's trying to, number one, keep people from being saved. And for those who are saved, he's trying to prevent them from being effective. So here's the thing. Spiritual warfare, when it comes right down to it, is number one, living for Christ. You know what? It's not easy to spend time reading your word, reading the Word of God or spending time in prayer, is it? It's not because he is fighting you. He and all of his helpers, they are fighting against that. Here's something else. They are trying to keep you blinded from the truth as much as possible if you belong to Christ. But they are definitely keeping those who don't have Christ blinded. This is why reading the Word of God is spiritual warfare. This is why praying is spiritual warfare. This is why evangelism is spiritual warfare. You know, one of the things that Satan is trying to get you to do is not give the good news to anybody else. You know, he's not happy if you come to Christ, if you have your eyes opened, but he's trying to prevent you from, number one, being a faithful witness, and number two, from sharing the gospel. Now, one of the things um, that we see when we look at all of this is Paul, he just doesn't talk about this here. He talks about this throughout, well, throughout Ephesians. Let's, let's see what else he has to say about this throughout Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, okay? And in Ephesians chapter 1, one of the things he says is in verse 21 is this. He says, starting with verse 20, This power he exercised in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and every name. So he talks about these different angelic beings, these different spiritual forces, okay? And specifically, rules, authorities, powers, and dominions. Then, in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says, And though you were dead in your 
trespasses and sins in which you formerly lived according to this world's path, according to the ruler of the domain of the air, the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience. What he says, what he means is this, folks. Before you came to Christ, you were spiritually what? Dead! You were blinded to the truth. You were walking in the same direction as everybody else. You were walking just like everybody else. You were thinking just like everybody else. But now, you have been saved. Now, you see the truth. Now, you can walk differently because you have his power. You have him living in you. You have him walking with you. You have him empowering you. He goes on a little further in chapter 3, and he says this in, in verse 10. He says, the purpose, the purpose of this enlightenment is that through the church, the multifaceted wisdom of God should now be disclosed to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. So when we get to chapter 6, it's not the first time he's talking about this. So in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. See, these rebellious angelic powers that are going to be dealt with eventually that, that are mentioned here in Psalm chapter 82, yeah, that's what you are dealing with. You know, um, it's interesting um, when you start to look at some of the language that, that, that he uses here, he says, for we, our struggle, or we wrestled not against flesh and blood. Okay? Let's take a look at some other things he says with reference to this. Let's take a look at... 2 Corinthians, let's take a look at chapter 10. Now let's take a look at verse 3. For though we live as human beings, we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not human weapons, 
but are made powerful by God for tearing down strongholds. We tear down arguments and every arrogant obstacle that is raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to make it obey Christ. We are ready to punish every act of disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. The idea here is this. This world is going to tell you all kind of lies. This world is going to do everything to deceive you. This world is going to do everything to keep you blinded to the truth. But if you read the Word of God, if you try to live in accordance with God's Word, you're going to fight against the, the, the lies of this world. And you are going to, well, you're going to find yourself in debates at times. The nature of spiritual warfare, folks, part of it is fighting for the truth. Because, you know what? The devil is full of lies. That's how he keeps people bound. Something else here. When we take a look at Ephesians, one of the things that Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. He names them again. But against these rulers, against the powers, against the cosmocrators or world powers of this darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. So Paul also talks about this in Colossians, okay? So let's go to Colossians chapter 1, and let's take a look at verse 15. And this is what Paul has to say on this subject. He says of Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For all things in heaven and on earth were created in him. All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. For he himself is before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, as well as the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he may become the first in all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son, and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of the cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, what is he saying with all of this? What he's saying is, yeah, you've got all these different sorts of angelic powers that, that fallen people see as gods, but Jesus Christ is far above and beyond any of them. See, the rest of the world is enslaved to those things. And Jesus Christ, he bought us. He owns us. 
and we should be following him because those things no longer have the kind of power that they had over us. One of the other things he says in Ephesians chapters chapter 6, verse 12, he talks about these rulers, powers, world rulers, darkness, and this darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies, okay? So here's a general term that you've heard before, demons. Now in the Old Testament, the word is shedim. In the Greek, the word is daimon, or daimonion. You know, the word demon is just a, a transliteration of that. Let's take a look once again at Deuteronomy. Now let's take a look at chapter 32. But this time, let's take a look at verse 15. But Jeshurun became fat and kicked. You got fat, thick, and stuffed. Then he deserted the God who made him and treated the rock who saved him with contempt. They made him jealous with other gods. They enraged him with aberrant idols. They sacrificed to demons, not God, to gods they had not known, to new gods, who had come along recently, God your ancestors had not known. You forgot about the rock who fathered you and put you out of mind, the God who gave you birth. See, these other gods, these idols that it's talking about here, these things are real. You want to know why people in all of these false religions hold to them so, so fiercely? It's because they are bound by these things. And there's only one key that can remove that lock. That key is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you and I have that key. And this is why it is so important that we should, number one, live for Christ. And number two, spread the gospel. Because people need to be freed from these things. He says in verse 17, they sacrificed to demons, not God, to gods they had not known. Let's take a look at what Paul has to say about these demons. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And let's go to verse 20.
Let's start with verse 19. Am I saying that idols or food sacrificed to them amount to anything? No. I mean that what pagans sacrifice is to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be partners with demons. For you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot take part in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. See, people who are caught up in these false religious systems, they are locked in by these demons. And there's only one cure for them. There's only one thing that can help them. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, Satan really doesn't like it when you give that gospel. He fights against you tooth and nail. He tries to make it difficult for you. Now, I brought with me today um, uh, one of my favorite books. It's it's written by William Gurnall. Not a name, I'm, a name I'm sure many of you haven't heard before. He was a, a Puritan, and he wrote this book, what, 400 years ago? The name of the book is The Christian in Complete Armor. And, I mean, this, this book, is, it's, it is so rich. And I just want to read just a little bit of it talking about the nature of the war and the character of the assailants. He says, with regard to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, the words contain a lively description of a bloody and lasting war between the Christian and his implacable enemy. In them, we observe that the Christian's state in this life is set out by the word wrestling. Secondly, we observe the assailants that appear in arms against him. And so he says, the nature of the war is set out by the word wrestling. First, the sharpness of the conflict, the kind of Christian combat, which is mentioned here is translated, we wrestle. Though the word is sometimes used for the sport of wrestling, here it's used to set out the sharpness of the Christian's encounter with Satan. We note it is single combat. Wrestling is not properly fighting in a group, but it is when one enemy singles out another, exerting their whole force and strength against the other. Wrestling signifies a furious combat that cannot be avoided. In wrestling, one cannot escape, for he is the particular object of the opponent's fury. Each wrestler will be shaken and tried to the utmost of his ability. Now, I've told you about, you know, the fact that when uh, I, wa I was in high school, you know, I lettered in wrestling, and the, the name Craig Mitchell was feared by nobody in the state of California. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I gave it my all because that's what you've got to do in wrestling, win, lose, or draw. You've got to give it your all. And that's what Gurnall is explaining here. He says it's single combat. Then he goes on to say it's a close combat. Armies may fight at some distance, but wrestlers grapple hand to hand. 
An arrow shot from afar may be seen and avoided, but when the enemy has a grip on a saint, either he must resist fervently or fall shamefully at his opponent's feet. Satan closes in, gets inside the Christian's mind, and takes hold on his fleshly corrupt nature. And in this way, he shakes us. He, he then goes on to say that this, there's universally, universality in this combat. He says, wrestling here comprehends all. So if you are a Christian, you are involved in this wrestling. If you are a Christian, Satan knows your name. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. And he's going to do whatever it takes to humble you. He's going to do whatever it takes to make you ineffective. And Gurnall goes on to say here, wrestling here comprehends all. You may perceive that the apostle changes the pronoun you and in the former verse, into we in this verse, he does this for the purpose of showing that he includes himself along with them. The quarrel is with every saint. Satan assaults everyone, whether an apostle, a minister, or one of the people. There is not one part of Christ's army in the field and the other at ease in their, head, in their quarters. No, all must wrestle all the time, all at once. And he says, this, the nature of this, this warfare, it's permanent. He says, the word is in the present tense. It's not that we wrestled at our first conversion, but that, but that we must wrestle now. Our enemy never loses sight of us. He is daily in a fight with us. There is an evil in every day's temptation. The Christian's life is a continual wrestling. He is Born a man of strife, from spiritual birth to natural death, there shall be a war fought between each Christian and Satan. So from now on, you're in the fight. See, before you come to Christ, well, Satan just owns you. He says, jump, and you ask how high. But now that you belong to Christ, now you are in the fight. Michael Heiser, um, it was one of the leading scholars relating to a lot of this, this uh spiritual warfare, and I I had the the opportunity to meet him once and and talk with him, but, you know, um, one of the things that, that, that Heiser goes on to say is this. When a person gets baptized, what they are doing is they are making a public declaration that they are siding with Christ. And from that point on, you are in the fight. From that point on, you are in Satan's crosshairs. From that point on, you are wrestling. Here's the question. Are you wrestling to win? 
Are you striving to spend as much time learning the truth as you can? Are you spending your time with other believers? Are you praying for other believers? Are you sharing the gospel? You know, um, you know, I love the old hymns. Um, one of my favorite hymns was written by Martin Luther. You know which one. A mighty fortress is our God. I'm sure most of the people here have sung it. Do you know what it's about? It's about spiritual warfare. Listen to the words. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is what? Forever. Now, if you belong to Jesus Christ today, let me encourage you to join the fight and that you fight to win. And if you do not belong to Jesus Christ today, frankly, I wonder how you make it. If you don't belong to Jesus Christ today, you are owned by Satan. And when you die, you, like he, will be cast into a lake of fire where you will suffer there eternally. If you belong to Jesus Christ, in contrast, at the end of this battle, at the end of this wrestling, you will spend an eternity with Jesus Christ.
we will be in a heaven that's beautiful and glorious beyond what we could ever hope or imagine. And we will be with him. Hey, let's not live with just these earthly eyes. Let's, let's strive to see what's beyond this reality. Let's strive to live for him, to glorify him. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you would be with each person here. And Lord, I pray that for those who know you, that Lord, that they would strive to glorify your holy name in their lives, that they would wrestle, and that they would wrestle to win. But Lord, for those who do not know you, Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of their understanding. I pray that you would help each believer here to be a faithful and effective witness. And I pray that, Lord, that many would come to know you today. I pray that if anyone is here who doesn't know you, that they would respond now, that they would seek you today, that today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, guide us. We sing in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.